Tomorrow's Wall Street Titan might be an AI bot. 40% of all open job roles in finance today are for AI-related hires, and almost half of firms cite AI as a way to improve customer experiences. Find out more about the impact of AI on finance later in the podcast. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Emily Chang. And this is The Circuit. For as long as I've been covering tech, I've covered the resistance to it. The critics and the whistleblowers who've turned up the volume. Doing this is incredibly risky because these companies are just so powerful. They basically make you take a vow of silence to work there. It's called signing a non-disclosure agreement. In this episode of The Circuit, I meet Ifoma Ozoma, a former Pinterest public policy and social impact manager who essentially blew the whistle on the system itself. More recently, she left Silicon Valley for a quieter life on a farm in Santa Fe, where we find her now. So this is where the goats live and the chickens and the rabbits. And yeah, I couldn't imagine doing all of this, living in the Bay Area, but I built this. We're joined by two women who've also spoken out about tech. Timnit Gebru, founder of the Distributed Artificial Intelligence Research Institute and a former Google ethical AI researcher. She says she was fired. Google says she resigned. UCLA professor Safia Noble wrote the book Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. Together, you might say the three of them make up a small part of a growing tech resistance. Here's my conversation with Ifoma Ozoma, Timnit Gebru, and Safia Noble. At what point did you realize, I need to speak up? Like, enough is enough. I saw her Twitter thread first, so maybe. (laughs) And we actually spoke before you ended up speaking up. Yeah, so uh, after Pinterest pushed me out, I, uh, I knew at some point that I was going to talk about my story. I didn't realize it was going to be so soon. But Pinterest, along with many other companies who posted statements after George Floyd's murder, Uh, about how they stood with (laughs) their black employees. And what was particularly galling for me was I knew the team who would have drafted that statement. And so I felt I had to say something. And to me, didn't you call Ifoma the day before it all went down? Mm -hmm. I was just at that point, I had been also tweeting about like, you know, whistleblower protection <laughs> and um, yeah, being silenced and all of that. And if you almost saw whatever I tweeted about whistleblower protection and was like, hey, I'm working on this thing, which ended up being the Tech Worker Handbook, uh, right? And yep. so she was describing to me the handbook that she was working on. And, and I was like, you know, I feel like they're really harassing me. She was like, you know, you got to take notes and all of that. The next day, you know, I found out I was disconnected, resigned apparently. By then, 
I, probably like you, had tried many other avenues. During the Black Lives Matter movement, we organized an entire thing for the research organization, um, giving them five points to act on after taking um, so many people's um, input and all that. Like, that was a few months before I got fired, right? So, what gave you the courage to speak up? I don't know that anything gave me the courage. The way I've thought about speaking up always is what are you afraid of and what would keep you from speaking up? And for me personally, the only thing that I've ever been afraid of was my mom passing away, and that happened. So, honestly, what else do I have to lose? Mm -hmm. How about you, Timmy? Yeah, I think that for me, it's like, what am I willing to lose? And am I in a position in my life and my career right now to lose that? And I, I was, actually, compared to a lot of people who have to think about putting food on the table, kids, you know, they can't. I, I have been in situations in my life, like, for instance, before I got my citizenship, when I had political asylum, I would never go to a protest. Like, yeah. I wasn't about to risk that. So I was no longer in that position. And I tried not speaking up, and it wasn't like things were getting better. So, you know, so I, I really was at a place in my life where I think, you know, if I was never going to get a job in those kinds of places anymore, I was okay with that. Mm-hmm. I think you made a great point. We have a lot of privilege <laughs> sitting here, and I think it's important to acknowledge that. I wrote shortly after coming forward about Pinterest that if I had kids, if I had family who were on my health insurance, I never would have even hired an attorney while I was there because I knew from the point I hired a lawyer what the end would be, and I couldn't have risked that if I had people who depended on me. So there is a level of privilege in even being able to say something. Sophia, you've been critiquing the tech industry for years. What was it like on the outside watching their stories unfold? (laughs) I mean, I had so much respect and felt like and still feel like uh, my work is in service of making it possible for you all to do what you've done in your careers and also to uh, be the person who holds up the studies and the research and says, Mm -hmm. you know, these things are happening, these things are real, and these are the people who pay the price, um, as well as millions of other people who look like us who pay the price for the kinds of terrible worker practices, labor practices, but also product development that comes out of the tech industry. You know, I remember the night that Timnit was um, being let go of Google. I'm going to put that generously. People were watching it happen and unfold because you were live tweeting what Mm -hmm, was happening. mm -hmm. And uh, I was watching and I remember like sliding into your DMs and I was like, hey girl, are you okay? Yeah. Are you going to be all right? And and we got you. What do you we know? need to do? What do you fellowship? need? What's do you need a fellowship? Do, like, we got to make sure that you can still pay your bills. I don't think I fully thought through that you were leaving Google, so you probably have plenty of money. But like, <laughs> at least you weren't going to be like out next month. Yeah. But, you know, but that had been, you know, my orientation in my own career, which was many of us who were taking risks in, in critiquing the tech industry were untenured, um, vulnerable graduate students, you know, people who there would have been uh, a high price to pay if there had been retaliation. So I identified so much with that. And then when um, Ifioma and I met, I remember we met in person at a meeting 
And in, in the meeting, I remember um, they said, everybody who's like energized in your work, you know, go to this side of the room and everyone who's like really circling the drain and struggling, go to that side of the room. And she and I went to the very, the like we were one. fighting for last place, you know, on that side. And, um, that was where most of the black women were in fact, um, on that side. And I remember that what we started talking and I was so attuned to the price you were paying for the work you were doing. And I was like, you know, I identify, I identify with both of you and, um, you're not alone. You're not going to have to go through these things. Like we're in this together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Fiona was working in the background. Every, I feel like so many of them were working in the background on my behalf. Like you were finding lawyers, you know, writing letters and everything. So, so there's a network, a resistance yeah. network, if mm-hmm. you will. Can you characterize what it's like being inside these companies and trying to raise these issues and the struggle of that? Like, are they trying to squash you? Does it feel incredibly lonely? Oh yeah, my situation is unique in that, not that I experienced it, very much not unique, but in that it was written about. Uh, There's one particular situation where Uh, The company had been uh, called to task for years on uh, elevating plantations as wedding venues, plantations. Uh, You would not elevate any other place where people were tortured and murdered Mm. as a wedding venue. And a civil rights organization came to us, said, hey, we want to work with you, but if you don't make this policy change, we are going to go to the press and talk about it. I brought it to the company. I laid out all of the options that we had uh, for changing the policy, did it in what I thought was a very diplomatic way. And the company was praised for it, for taking my recommendations in the end. And in my performance review, after 50 plus articles came out praising the company, the kind of PR boost you can't pay for, I got a negative performance review for the work that I did on that because I was biased is what my white male manager said in my performance review for it. You ended the promotion of plantation weddings on Pinterest. That's correct. And you were criticized. And I was criticized for it specifically for being biased is what he said. As if there's an unbiased position to take. Apparently, yeah, there I guess is. There's a, pro- there's a pro-plantation yeah. stance that could have been taken no, that I guess I should have no. taken. I mean, it got to the point where my sister would call me and she'd say, I just heard you on NPR. <laughs> like, aren't they afraid that one day you're going to be in a live interview and you're going to just say, I'm being treated like trash at this company, here's what's going on. And there was this dissonance that they believed that my work was good enough to be on All Things Considered, uh, Mm. to be the one who's out there talking about Mm. the company uh, because my work was good, my face was the right face for it, but I wasn't worth being paid Mm. and respected the way that others were. To me, what was it like agitating for the stuff that you were agitating or advocating for inside Google? So like two months after I joined, I would say, was the Google walkout. Yeah. And I sent this email being like, I am so glad this is happening because I've only been here for two months and this is ridiculous, you know? <laughs> and ever since then, I think I, I didn't really make friends um, in, with the higher ups, you know? Um, and I think we, 
what the way I tried to do it at Google is me and Meg were always a duo, and so my co-lead Meg was in trouble when I got in, and yeah, so I always went to her HR um, meetings with her. They're like, what are you doing? Like, I'm with her, <laughs> you know? And and they're like, I'm, I'm complaining about all the issues she's facing when they ask me, like, what, what should be better? And, I, and they're like, but what about you? And I said, look, that's going to be me in, in, like, two years. So we tried to go as a team and back each other up every time we complained about whatever it is, like gender discrimination, racial discrimination, um, et cetera. And... Um, they didn't ding me on my performance review um, because my manager was trying to protect us, but it always felt like they were waiting for something because you know we always get that tone policing, and it was really exhausting. And so I felt like that they found that one thing <laughs> when I you know right. with my paper. Sophia, when it comes to sort of the broader state of tech workers, is history repeating itself? I think it's the same history. It's just a new <laughs> industry. There's this way of critiquing people who um, have something to say about technology, calling us Luddites, right? I mean, this is like a, you know, a group of people, of workers who understood that new technological inventions were going to reshape the labor force and were actually going to take away the creativity, the creative labor, in fact, that the Luddites did. You know, I find that to be so similar today that people who are saying, listen, so many of these products that are being brought to bear in the marketplace are not only harmful, but they they steal our creative imagination. They steal our human agency. They are, you know, th- these are dangerous to humanity. We get kind of I think marked as some mm-hmm. type of um, not innovative, not forward thinking, you know, Luddites. And I, I think we're, in fact, um, that's a compliment. I mean, we are actually people who, like many people, who are trying to say um, some technological innovations are actually going to undermine workers, the quality of work, the nature of work. Um, the creative expression and joy that also can be tied to work. Mm-hmm. They are going to flatten our human experiences in so many ways, rob people of opportunity, mm-hmm. foreclose opportunity. Those kinds of criticisms many people have made for centuries when we have seen um, industries uh, extract to the point of absurdity and leave workers holding the bag or leave workers unable, in the case of tech workers, unable to live in the Bay Area, unable to afford rent, unable to afford mm-hmm. to raise children. I mean, I can't even tell you how many women I've met who mm-hmm. feel that they have to choose between working in, in certain industries or having a family. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are ludicrous ideas, especially in an industry that is making more money than any other industry on the planet. And this is global too, right? I mean, isn't mm-hmm. aren't there workers propping up tech around the world? Yeah, I mean, we had uh, an event um, at D.A.R.E. called Stochastic Parrots Day, which is uh, about a paper that I got fired for. And Sophia and I were actually on a panel there with um, somebody whose name was uh, Richard, and he was one of the workers who was um, labeling the outputs of the models, uh, OpenAI models, like Mm -hmm. ChatGPT or these text-to-image models, and he was talking about how traumatic it was. Um, And he was detailing for us the PTSD that comes with it and how much worse it is um, when it's actually synthetic, 
data, right? Like generated content, because you go home wondering if this is actually, if this happens, if people do this in the real world, <laughs> because you can just generate any kind of content you want, right? So um, people like him were getting paid like an uh, $1 something an hour, and workers like that are left dealing with the trauma that they experience and they have no resources to do mm -hmm. that. So it's similar to the extraction industry. It is global mm -hmm. um, and it preys on vulnerable people. Mm -hmm. OpenAI was accused of using workers in Kenya, paying them less than $2 an hour to make ChatGPT less toxic. I asked the CTO about this and she mm -hmm. said, we chose this particular contractor because of their known safety standards and since then they've stopped using them. This is difficult work and we recognize that and we have mental and wellness standards. This is a known tactic to offload to a third right. contractor so that you are not the one who's being held mm -hmm. accountable. So, yeah, yeah, they borrowed that right from the fashion <laughs> um, industry and other industries. So there are many industries that have done that. The tech industry has pulled a, a page right out of those playbooks. And, you know, I teach my students um, at UCLA about all kinds of different social movements. One of the things that people feel about what's happening with tech is that it's just kind of, it's totalizing, it's a fait accompli. These are the technologies that we have. They're here now. There's nothing we can do. We have to live with them, make the best of it. And of course, people who lived during the era of the transatlantic slave trade, people who lived in, in the Americas during the time of the period of enslavement, also got up every day and got their kids ready for school. They completely normalized the experience mm -hmm. of enslavement. Mm -hmm. And so this is, I think, an important thing to invoke is that people build societies that they think are normal when they are the beneficiaries of them mm -hmm. for the most part. And also people who are oppressed inside those systems um, come to accommodate in some ways because it is totalizing and overwhelming to live mm -hmm. under those kinds of oppressive mm -hmm. systems. And there are also people who seek to abolish, who, who resist, and are like, absolutely not. not. No way, not in my lifetime, mm -hmm. not in my children's, my grandchildren's. I think we are, in fact, all three of us, the descendants of people who mm -hmm. refused in one way or another. And I think it's important to say we're not anti-technology. Mm -hmm. My entire <laughs> career was at Google, Facebook, Pinterest. I'm working on issues within the industry, but we're pro-human dignity. <laughs> and currently in the industry, unfortunately, human dignity is not even on the list of issues. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not there. Connecting human-led responsible AI with rich data sets is driving innovation in new and unexpected ways. But financial services companies need a secure and resilient network to support AI architecture. With the next level network from AT&T Business, AI data travels at low latency through reliable, fast connectivity. So financial leaders can focus on what matters most, a better future for their businesses and their customers. Learn about connected solutions from AT&T Business at att.com slash y hyphen att hyphen business.
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Algorithms are a complete mystery to most of us on the outside, a black box. You know, we know they're recommending videos or targeting ads, but how are our algorithms influencing us in ways that we are completely unaware of? You know, sometimes I don't even know myself, right? When you're um, on social media and you're super angry and you're responding to everything versus not, um, you don't realize that that's because the, in, the algorithms that they're using maximize for engagement of any mm-hmm. kind. And when you're angry, you're engaging with the site more. Um, so I feel personally, even as someone in this field, I'm still learning about all the different ways in which my day-to-day life is being influenced by a bunch of decisions that companies are making. Decisions like to release ChatGPT, for example. <laughs> yes, I mean that, so ChatGPT absolutely is important and we should discuss it, but even that, using that is a choice currently. Mm-hmm. Uh, using social media, the companies that I worked for, using their products is a choice, but where algorithms are particularly dangerous is where we don't have a choice. There That's are algorithms true. that determine what kind of care you're going to get if you're black and you have kidney disease. Mm-hmm. There are algorithms that determine, like for instance, when I uh, went to purchase this house, I could have ended up in a situation where I wasn't able to get a mortgage depending on the algorithm that the mortgage company mm-hmm. was using. Mm-hmm. That, and that's where we really have to be careful because it's not consumer choice, it's not that consumers are ignorant and so the responsibility is theirs. The responsibility really lays with the companies and with regulating agencies who don't understand or just don't care. So when ChatGPT comes out and there is so much buzz so fast, what goes through your minds? I roll so hard that <laughs> I roll to the back of my yeah. head, you know, like I wrote a paper wrote about large paper. language models <laughs> like two years paper. ago. That's right. And um, most people didn't know what it was. I'm not surprised at the rate, I would say, of um, deployment, um, but I am surprised at the constant daily hype, the free. PR that's being given Mm -hmm. some of these companies, completely uncritical, right, uh, of their claims. Like, it's disheartening, personally speaking. What are your your biggest concerns about AI now that it's not in a lab at Google anymore? It is out, and everybody knows about it. What worries you most? I think the thing that keeps me up 
at night is the amount of data that's collected on us every single day just by having a, a data collection device in our bag or our pocket, mm -hmm. the phone, and all the kinds of things that we're interacting with and the predictions that get made then from that data that's collected about mm -hmm. us um, that will foreclose opportunity. Kathy O'Neill talks about this in her book, we Weapons of Math Destruction, that these types of predictive algorithms and AI um, make things better for people who are already doing great mm -hmm. and things worse for people who are not faring well. And that is probably the thing that stresses me out the most is that those types of AI that get embedded in every industry as, again, a tool of alleged efficiency are using data sets and, and also data collected about us to um, over-determine mm -hmm. what our futures will be. Timney, when you left Google, it sort of triggered this wave of agitation within. You know, now we, we're hearing that some Google employees begged for Bard to not be released. They said it was a pathological liar. Is the tension building? You know, unfortunately, I would say that there was a moment that we had where people were speaking up and now it's like backlash all the way down. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they're making the calculation that they don't even need to pretend um, yeah. anymore. The tension, is it building in like a progressive way, like a way that leads to progress or? So I think not. that we need regulation. So perhaps that kind of momentum is building. More people are thinking about regulation. But in terms of worker protection and workers inside these organizations pushing back, they're facing so much backlash um, with a lot of the layoffs of these ethics teams at Microsoft, at Google, at Twitch. I'm sure there's more too. Twitter, I mean. Tw I mean, let's not even. <laughs> I right? And here's where uh, yeah. policy, as I'm not a computer scientist, I'm not an academic, but I know policy. And here's where policymakers are really dropping the ball. Mm -hmm. We had an opportunity to move forward on something like healthcare mm -hmm. and disentangling healthcare from employment. Mm -hmm. That's one piece that would allow people to speak up because if mm -hmm. your access to healthcare, if your family's access to healthcare isn't dependent on your employer, then you can talk about mm -hmm. harms that you're seeing in the technology mm -hmm. that's being created. Mm -hmm. uh, if policymakers were willing to step up and actually regulate some of these things before they're an issue, um, or as they're an issue, then we wouldn't be in this place where you have lawmakers in Utah who think that it's a solution to ban kids from using social media and disconnect them from communities that are actually life-giving and life-affirming mm -hmm. uh, for people who are in marginalized communities. Right, or just pushing the onus of um, like control uh, from from being harmed to mm. the individual. Right. And the thing that people forget is that so much the, of the R&D for these kinds of technologies is offloaded already. It's the riskiest yeah. part of the business and it's offloaded to the public. Yeah. The public pays for the most dangerous dimensions of what the companies do because most of those companies have partnerships with academic labs and they get NSF, National Science Foundation funding and other kinds of government mm -hmm. funding to do that experiment. So here the public pays for the experiments 
and then uh, never benefits from right. the profitability of any of these companies. Mm -hmm. And then they regulate downstream and say it's on mm -hmm. you to figure out whether it's safe or not. I mean, not. Silicon right. Valley got most of its money from the government, right, during World War II and after that, right? Yeah. Like Elon Musk, the amount of money, California taxpayer money that he got, but they talk about, you know, pulling yourself up with the bootstraps. There's this perception that artificial intelligence is magic. Mm -hmm. But what's really happening? There well, are human beings, like the one who you mentioned, who are tagging things. There are human beings who are ensuring that we, those of us in polite society, uh, don't have to see the murders that mm -hmm. are being beheadings. captured, the mm -hmm. beheadings that are being played live on Facebook or on YouTube or anyone else. Someone is seeing that. Mm -hmm. It's just not us. And they don't think it's magic. The people who are um, doing the data labeling, the people who are content seeing moderation. all content moderation, and a lot of the people whose work is being stolen to train these models, like the artists whose images have been taken without any sort of attribution or payment, or the writers who, you know, I was just at a conference listening to artists and writers talk about some of the issues that they see with these generative AI models, right? And what the future holds for them. And they don't see it as magic. They see it as plagiarism and theft. So, you know, and I want to say that in my field, there is a concerted effort to, to, to make it sound like magic. It's this mm. obfuscation that happens on purpose so that you don't see where the data is coming from, who it's being stolen from, because they would have to compensate everybody. Uh, how the workers are being exploited, and then something, something in the cloud, right? It's not the cloud. It's data centers taking lots of water. I mean, we were just hearing about the water usage of ChatGPT. You know, when you really make it visible, it's yeah. not mm -hmm. magic. Mm -hmm. right. um, you know, it's uh, not sentient or magic or anything like that. And oh. there's nothing wrong with convenience. I, we all appreciate mm -hmm. convenience, but I don't want my convenience at the expense of another human being. What's your long-term view about how many jobs this will disappear and create? Because, you know, we're talking about more not-so-great jobs, right? Mm -hmm. The tagging of ChatGPT. Like, like, how do you see this playing out? So I, I'm very worried about like the centralization of power that this type of technology is enabling. So if you, whether you believe their claims or not, the claims of these companies are not, right? What they're striving for is one model that does everything for you. You, you want to go to a doctor, talk to a chatbot, a lawyer, talk to their chatbot. So what they're planning on having is they're like the super renter where everybody else builds on top of them. They have APIs on top of one or two or three companies for everything. So this is not the world I want to live in. So, so what does society even look like in this world? Is there like a massive wealth gap? Is there a caste system? I mean, or is everyone happy because we're on universal basic income? Not the last one because I mean, they're <laughs> yeah. not, they, they could do that now. Like it's just yeah. like according to OpenAI, you know, utopia is just around the corner any yeah. day now and we're and all going to be happy. I don't think that we're all going to like work less. <laughs> I think that's not what's going to happen, but I think that the work, certain people's work, I feel like is going to get degrade, degraded. So a lot of artists are very worried about losing their jobs and not because the image generated thing is going to be as good as an artist, but someone's going to think that it's good enough or something like mm -hmm. that and so they won't hire one. I think that the content moderation um, uh, 
requirements are going to be exploding with the amount of synthetic de- uh, media that we have on the internet. And so I feel like we'll have a lot more content moderation um, kind of jobs, but then we know what those jobs are like. So mm-hmm. I'm yeah. not looking, you know, I don't, yeah. I'm not optimistic there, there's, about this. There's a lot of doom mongering about the capabilities of AI. For the people who are scared, what do you want them to know? They're not wrong. They're Why not aren't wrong. they wrong? That's right, they're not wrong. Go ahead. Well, I mean, I would say that degradation is a really helpful word in this because people have a sense that something is off and um, something is going to be lost with these technologies. I will tell you right now in classrooms around the country, and I'm seeing this already um, in our university system, um, some people think something like um, generative AI helps level the playing field. Mm. So there's a lot of mythologies, right? If you're not a great writer and you're in the sciences or you're a math student, you don't have to worry about that when you're in those English Mm -hmm. classes now because you've got open AI is going to help you write those essays. What is lost? Imagine not learning the things that you learn when you put yourself in in an environment Mm -hmm. to learn something. Mm So I think we will have a transformation in the field of education that will not be what we want. I don't think it will help us think critically. A lot of us are doing experiments where we're looking up certain types of things where we are subject matter experts and we know a lot about that and we're asking open AI and it's giving us terrible answers that look good enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the loss of expertise, the loss of knowledge, those kinds of things are very important in societies that we have reliable information that we can all act upon as voters, as parents, as uh, residents, as, as people who live in communities. And Fake it till you make it. And it's, yeah, and it's making it right now. And yeah. predicting the wrong things. Um, One of the things that I think is important here, misinformation, disinformation have been a focus of mine, is the stripping of context. And that's one of my main concerns with ChatGPT and AI bots like that. So we're we're losing, we're not gaining now. Yeah, because it's one thing I think to present a bad answer. It's another thing to present it as though it's the only answer Mm -hmm. and without showing your sources or anything else so that if Mm -hmm. you're the person on the receiving end of that answer, you can say, okay, well, this came from this source. Mm -hmm. I can look that source up and make my own determination. You know, a bunch of people signed this letter, including Elon Musk, calling for a pause Mm -hmm. on the development of AI. What was your take on that? Mm -hmm. I mean, we had to write a statement responding to it because it really confused the conversation. A lot of people are like, great, that's what you've been asking for. This is what you want. And we had to put a stake in the ground and be like, no, we are different from those people. You called it unhinged. Yeah, yeah, it was completely unhinged because some of the things that all three of us are discussing right now are not sci-fi scenarios. We're talking about people losing opportunities today. We're talking about people not getting a mortgage, people not getting a care, people being sentenced... um, you know, have really high sentences because of some mundane, not sci-fi algorithms that are right now currently deployed. And then we're currently talking about worker exploitation, mundane, not sci-fi, you know? And in this pause letter, 
they're talking about AI as if it's magic. It's right. it's this magical thing. It's it's we've created something too powerful. We don't even know how it's gonna. Oh end. no! They just want to slow down so they can get <laughs> catch up. Yeah. That is like yeah. my take on it. Is is that not only do they are they trying to posit it as magic, but they're doing that as a tactic so they can catch up mm-hmm. because they're behind. Well, he started. Know? Elon Musk started this truth chat truth gpt thing now right <laughs> right after he signed saying stop it's like oh right. i have my own thing yeah, now no, what they mean is slow down so we can catch up right. sophia to use your term algorithms of oppression algorithms supercharged on ai given all the bias and misrepresentation and misinformation issues that already exist how much damage could we do like what could the fallout be we are already doing a lot of damage we have products in this industry in the tech industry that are made up and launched out of the public, no oversight, no no one checking for whether these are gonna do damage until the kinds of communities of researchers and technologists that we're part of start, and community organizers and journalists start exposing the evidence of harm. AI is so much more than chatbots. What are all the other ways that AI is developing? I mean, we're talking about surveillance and facial recognition and all of these other things that are very consequential. Surveillance in ways that people can't opt out of um, and people can't defend themselves from. There are people who have been arrested because their, their face came up in a police database where it wasn't actually their face. There's no way to opt out of being included in this database. And there are no guardrails for both the police departments that are buying Mm -hmm. this technology using our dollars, our taxpayer dollars, and then the companies that are scraping this uh, content from the internet. There are no guardrails anywhere and actual people are paying the price. And by the way, you've got a handful of companies that are based in Silicon Valley deciding what the next tech platform will be where most of the people who work there are white men, let's be honest. Are you thinking to yourselves like, here we are again? Here we've been going. And the consequences of that are really mundane in in ways like, maybe this app can help me track my period better than I could in my diary. So I use that and now law enforcement has a backdoor to come and arrest me because it might look like I'm planning to have an abortion from some type of analysis of my period tracker. So that seems so sci-fi, but that's actually happening today, yeah. right? Very mundane kinds of ways. We, we do these things in education where students have to use these learning management systems and upload papers and give comments and do all of these things in these tech systems. And then algorithms are run on them that predict which students are gonna be the most successful. Mm-hmm. In fact, financial aid officers and mission officers now in universities are people who need to be skilled in CRM databases. Mm-hmm. Because what they're doing is they're looking to see who's most likely to matriculate in four mm-hmm. years. Well, you know who that is? It's not somebody like me who had to work 30 hours a week to get through undergrad, whose parents couldn't pay for them mm-hmm. to go to college. I would definitely fail the statistical model, right? Of who the most ideal kind of university. That seems so banal. These kinds of things are really, they're not part of the like doomsday machine, but they actually are the kinds of things that 
even if you don't think you're ever going to get entrapped in a mugshot database, you care about whether your kids get an opportunity to go to school. When the Trump administration, um, you know, uh, announced that they were going to adopt a new software that was going to predict who the next mass shooter was, I thought to myself, this will be the moment that white men care about these conversations because it's going to be them that's going to be in the database because they're the profile of the mass shooter. And you're telling me you're going to apply a, a algorithm right. to determine who the next mass shooter is? You've got to be kidding me. There couldn't be more snake oil to be sold. So everybody's in on this. Everybody needs to be concerned because everybody could potentially be harmed. The issues that you're raising sound like what a lot of the tech leaders say they care about. Reid Hoffman and Sam Altman and Satya Nadella and Sundar Pichai and even Elon Musk, who said, we want AI that benefits society. Where do you diverge? I mean, I don't think we say what they say. I don't mm. think, I, I mean, right. I would say, uh, I think there are a lot of types of AI that should be abolished, that should not be in the marketplace, that are uh, making claims that are unfounded and are actually proven to be harmful. And um, I'm not convinced, in fact, that um, AI can be used for good. I'm not mm. one of those people. I also think that they have adopted the language oh, of the people who have been raising the criticisms and have incorporated those criticisms and then put themselves in charge of solving the very problems that they're being critiqued for. So this is where, um, you know, uh, Timmy and I, you know, I always laugh with, with her because um, I remember the day that Google announced that it was forming like an ethical AI team. And I was like... <laughs> Am I being punked? Like, there's just no way in the world that the people who have been denying that their products are harmful for for a long time are now in charge of addressing that there are some harms. It's profitable for them to look socially responsible. Companies have been trying to put posit themselves mm-hmm. as socially responsible at the point that consumers start to be concerned about the lack of social responsibility of those companies. But I don't think that um, we're actually saying the same thing mm-hmm. at all. What's been your communication like with tech workers on the inside of Google and Apple and other companies where there has been organizing? Um, it seems like everybody we've been communicating with has been getting fired. We have you know back channels and we have some kind of channels of organizing. But my sense is that right now a lot of people are scared people because are scared. of the layoffs and a lot of people are, yeah. So that's that's been my sense um, recently. Should people speak up, walk out, leave if they see injustice? Is there any way to communicate your concerns internally, effectively? I'm glad you asked that because my view is and always has been no one should make themselves a martyr. I don't mm-hmm. believe in martyrdom. I think if you feel the conviction, if you are able to because of your familial situation, your financial situation, uh, to speak up, then you should. But we live in a capitalist society. Capitalism all has us all uh, by the throat. And so if you need money to, shel- to have shelter, to have health care, to have food, to care for your family. I don't want anyone to risk all of that because of harms that are continuing. 
but for the people who are and the people who are standing up, we have to do everything that we can to protect and support them and do what we're able to on the outside now um, to ensure that their work isn't for vain and or in vain. You helped get the Silence No More Act passed yep. in California. You got the attention of Governor Gavin Newsom. Yep. This means that companies can't use NDAs to prevent employees from speaking out about certain things. Right. Is that enough protection? I mean, it's protection for 40 million people um, for both non-disclosure and non-disparagement agreements. So it's more than existed before, but the work is continuing. A similar bill was passed in Washington state. My hope, if we ever get a functioning Congress, would be to have federal protections because as we know, uh, workforces are distributed, and so there are people working all over the country right now who are on teams where their manager may be protected in California at a headquarter of a tech company, but the people who are actually being harmed may be in Texas or Louisiana or New York and not have those protections. You also created the Tech Workers Handbook. Right. What can workers find there? resources on how to seek legal help, resources on how to speak with reporters. One of the things that I've talked about a lot is uh, one of the advantages and privileges that I had when I came forward is I had experience speaking with people like you. It's not easy to sit down and talk about a traumatic experience you've had and it's not easy to sit down and answer questions without training. That's training that I got on the inside of these companies uh, speaking on behalf of the companies, and of course I was going to use that <laughs> to speak on my behalf and on the behalf of other workers. The circuit continues after this quick break. Connecting human-led responsible AI with rich data sets is driving innovation in new and unexpected ways. But financial services companies need a secure and resilient network to support AI architecture. With the next level network from AT&T Business, AI data travels at low latency through reliable, fast connectivity. So financial leaders can focus on what matters most, a better future for their businesses and their customers. Learn about connected solutions from AT&T Business at att.com slash y hyphen att hyphen business. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So, is regulation the only way to keep this in check? It's 
the most important way because it's the way that impacts the largest number of people and we want everyone um, operating under the same framework and protections. We may be shareholders of a company, but we're small fry. I mean, the banks, the folks who are really making the decisions uh, because they own one to 3% of a company, they could step in and they should step in because long-term their investments are impacted by the harms that these companies are perpetrating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say, uh, just to build on that too, um, workers should be looking at their pensions and where their right. investments and their 401ks are. We remember there were so many people, I remember you know, just two decades ago, who were organizing around making sure that they were not investing in prisons or in um, military weapons and other kinds of things they did not want to see their their pensions and 401ks invested in. So those are other ways yep. that everyday people can also be asking kind, the kinds of questions of the companies where they work and how their assets are being managed. If you had one year to run these companies, what would you do? I like my life here, raising my goats and chickens, so I wouldn't. Um, but I am happy to continue the work that I'm doing now. I mean, there, there's so much harm, like I said, that's been done, that before you figure out the plan for what's next, there needs to be repair work that's mm. done. So what does that look like? Actually paying people for the harms that they've endured, whether that's consumers who have been harmed by privacy violations or the workers who have been harmed through wage theft mm -hmm. so and actual like physical harm to themselves. Let's say your uh, Google search algorithm is uh, populating some kind of uh, disinformation about you mm -hmm. and you can't get that off of the search engine and it's precluding you from employment. Um, you need repair from that. You can't just submit a, online a, a, a request for Google to take that down. They have hundreds of thousands of takedown requests that are never right. going to be attended to. So you need to have these spaces, these intermediaries where people can go and say, I have been harmed. This product is faulty. Mm -hmm. There needs to be liability both for the company, but also I need to be able to litigate or have some type of repair. We don't really have the laws it's on the books right yet of action. Yeah. so that people can, in fact, um, get the remedies that they need through courts. We also don't have a judiciary that is properly educated yet so on how to resolve some of these yeah. things. So we need human and civil rights laws that give people the kinds of protections that they need to. And when really, I think Congress is not caught up with the digital age and the kinds of harms and civil rights violations. So this is also another place of enforcement. So civil rights for the digital age, which is Absolutely. what you've been calling for. What about you, Tamit? If you could go back to Google and you were in charge for a year, what would you do? I wouldn't put out a chatbot version of a search engine. You know, I think OpenAI can do that because that's their that's the only thing really people expect from them. Search is not their bread and butter. And so I think that, in my opinion, Google just trying to act like they're also innovative or something like that. I don't know. They wanted to be um, in the hype cycle, too, I suppose. And they just put something out there. I would, <laughs> I would say, OK, this is our bread and butter. Search is our bread and butter. You know, We have to maintain the integrity of the information ecosystem. As a researcher, also, I think a lot of researchers in computer science can do something, can choose to do something different. There was um, just a, a professor at University of Chicago who created a tool called Glaze that artists can use to when, so that when they put out their work, 
um, they can't be used to mimic their style. So it mm -hmm. fools um, tools like Dali and some of the other text-to-image generators. So because you know when artists are in these lawsuits, it takes years for the courts to decide. They don't have time to wait for this kind of stuff. So tech workers could actually choose to use their skills to help them protect their art. A lot of us talk about the tech industry, but it's not just the tech industry. It's the whole ethos of the entire computer science, engineering, you know, machine learning, AI, whatever, research community as well that's led to this. It's not just, you know, the corporations. Mm -hmm. So policymakers too, who are bought and paid for by the companies that they're supposedly legislating against mm -hmm. and meant to be regulating. When I, when you look at the spending that Google and others do in campaigns that they make sure is 50-50 on either side, they're funding absolutely everyone. Who is it that we can turn to as a champion when they're all accepting money from these companies? So are we stuck? <laughs> I mean, is there a glimmer of hope? Like, Yeah, we're absolutely. Yeah. We're, I, we, we know we're the glimmers here, of hope. We know many, 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 many people yeah. who are glimmers of hope. And, um, you know, it's interesting because 10 years ago, it was very hard to have this conversation. So we know that a lot of envelopes are being pushed and that we're even in a, a, a space to bring these conversations up and have them understood. So, of course, mm. there's lots of hope. I mean, this is why I think, you know, scholars and journalists and tech workers and artists, we're able to make those conversations legible to everyday people. And to me, that is incredibly helpful. If the CEOs of Google and Microsoft and Amazon and Apple or Facebook were in this room right now, what would you say to them? Nothing that, <laughs> nothing that would be super effective if their GCs weren't also here. Because mm -hmm. some of these CEOs may want to do things differently, but they have legal counsel who's ensuring they don't. And so what I have found, even when I've been in conversations with CEOs and decision makers, is they are looking to the people who really make the decisions, and those are the ones who are mitigating for risk. Mm -hmm. And right now, it's not a risk to harm workers. It's not a risk to harm consumers. It's not more of a risk than harming shareholders. And so we have to speak to the people who are actually de the decision makers, and it's not always the CEOs. Well, I was gonna say, I mean, do better, of course, but also, <laughs> The fines that they pay to, when they violate the law and um, you know the, the court cases that they settle, it's like pocket lint to and it's not these their companies. Money. It's not their money. So yeah. for sure we know that CEOs, if they were personally liable in any way for what happens in those companies, well, uh, it would be slim pickings for who would want to be <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. CEO of most of these companies. I think that if uh, American tech companies in particular really wanted to seal their uh, legacy and reputations, they would take these conversations to heart and say, all right, um, you know, we are the so-called innovators, and this is how they frame themselves mm -hmm. as being the most imaginative, the best innovators, the best yeah. thinkers. It's strange how they can't solve these problems. Will you stay in kind of a race to the bottom to extract profits at all mm -hmm. costs? Or could you innovate a different kind of labor and cooperative model? Could you, uh, could you share in the profits with your employees? Could you think of different kinds of economic mm -hmm. models? I mean, they actually could. Mm -hmm. And um, that could be transformative. But I don't think that there's the will.
And I think, um, you know, maybe if they were thinking like good ancestors, like what's the legacy that, that they leave for three or four or five generations from now, maybe they would make different kinds of choices. Mm-hmm. I- I also want to add really quickly, I think some of the responsibility is on your industry as well, mm-hmm. because we have living hagiographies that are done about these people. Like we were watching the harms, we're sometimes talking about the harms, sometimes honestly, often not very honestly, but then they put out something that's new and shiny. and almost every outlet runs to cover it and runs to cover it using the talking points that the comms and PR folks from the company supply. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's a lot of responsibility there in the way that things are covered and therefore the way that people understand them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fair point. It matters what stories are told, how the stories are told, who's telling the stories, whose voices are lifted. So thank you for lifting your voices with us today. It sounds in many ways like this is an impossible problem to solve. Is it impossible? No. We're, I mean, we're providing solutions there and we're, we are following the work of many, many, many other people who are not represented here, who are never asked to be on camera, who are never asked for a quote. And you just have to look at the work that they're doing mm-hmm. and the work that communities are asking for and that people are stepping up and saying is important and necessary. Yeah. If things don't change, what does the future look like? I think, you know, I'm worried about the fundamental remaking of society the same way it happened with cars. For instance, I was just reading this book called The Road to Nowhere by Paris Marx talking about that that in the beginning, you know, in like the 1920s, 1910s, it was not okay when cars killed people, people protested, people went, you know, out in the streets, and now it's completely normalized, and we have a completely different sort of society than the one without individual cars. You know, we don't have public transportation so many places. Talk about Silicon Valley, like. (laughs) Can't um, they fix that? Yeah, and, and so what I'm worried about is a similar type of remaking of society with some of these tools, right, that are out there, where by the time we regulate things, the society has already been remade, you know, in yeah. ways that we weren't, you know, that we don't want, yeah. and then normalized. Yeah. We are, are pummeling toward a type of global inequality that will be very hard to come back from, and that will also have incredible consequences, social consequences. You know, I think of us and so many other women like us and people like us as like the canaries in the coal mine. You know, we're, we're like chirping, we're trying, and then we're going to go silent. And what that means is we're dead because the fumes have taken us over. And that, that part seems so tragic and unnecessary um, when we know that there's enough evidence to, to pivot in other directions. If things do change for the better, what could the future look like? Oh man, I was just looking outside at the goats um, and thinking that my dream, like what I want for my kids, what I want for everyone is work to not define your life. I want you to be able to make a living that enables you to do what brings you joy. If that's milking goats, if that's 
picking eggs from your chickens. Like that's what you should be doing. Whatever joy looks like for everyone um, and whatever joy looks like specifically for black women mm -hmm. is what I want us to be able to get. Because when black women are taken care of, everyone is. Mm. And so that's, that's the future that I want. I yeah, I mean, that. I feel like there's so much, um, there's so much wealth in the world, really everybody could have a high quality of life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, like let's spread a high quality of life for everyone. I want, I don't just want a safe, incredible world, a joyous world like you're talking about. I'm not sure if I would do the animals, but I'm just <laughs> saying like my urban city version of that. I want that for everybody's kids. Mm -hmm. You know, I want that for everybody's generations. For everyone. For everyone. Yes. Thank you. That was amazing. Pinterest said in a statement that it has, quote, introduced pay transparency tools for employees and taken steps to continually monitor employee pay to ensure that we're achieving equal pay for comparable work. We've increased the percentage of women in leadership and continue to set goals for increasing diversity. The company said it's committed to ensuring that every employee feels, quote, empowered to raise any concerns about their work experience. Google said in a statement that it seeks to develop, quote, AI in a way that maximizes the positive benefits to society while addressing the big challenges guided by our AI principles, and that, quote, large language models have known limitations, which is why we launched BARD as an experiment and developed safeguards to provide people with a positive experience. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Circuit. I'm Emily Chang. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at TV. You can watch new episodes of The Circuit on Bloomberg Television or on demand by downloading the Bloomberg app to your smart TV. And please let us know what you think by leaving a review. I'm your host and executive producer. Our senior producer is Lauren Ellis. Our associate producer is Lizzie Phillip. Our editor is Sarah Livesey. Thanks so much for listening. Success. It's discipline. It's teamwork. It's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing global wealth management and investment banking firms in the industry. Stiefel. It's where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.